this week we're diving into the origin stories and inspirations of some creators and one of the podcasters that i really like is jay kunzo i featured him before in the yellow banana story like the savannah banana story some of you like that a lot <laughs> um, and he actually got interviewed recently and posted that interview on his podcast so this is the anthony bourdain oyster story what you're asking people to do is take a stand for the work that they're doing which and anytime you take a stand you it takes courage um and knowing your love of stories and the archetype of what it makes a great story i'm wondering if there was a, a mentor for you who showed you what courage looks like in a situation like this i've gotten very many digital mentors as many of us do where you maybe don't interact yeah. or interact digitally and um you know but a few personal ones come to mind you know i i think about john jack shred uh mr shred my high school english teacher and mr shredder <laughs> oh, i love high school english oh, teachers i've got a few of those myself the yeah. shredder so here's this short guy <laughs> this kind of like very short guy with like a little like mop of gray and black hair and big glasses that would kind of bounce along as he bounced along the halls and yeah. he'd get really red in the face when he got passionate about something a little sweaty <laughs> And uh, he was like a, an avid cyclist. Uh, I went to an mm. all-boy Catholic school in, in high school right. uh, in Connecticut. And um, so his tie would always be a little disheveled and loose. And But he was a stickler. So so a lot of people who had him knew him as the stickler who would measure the margins of the paper for the essay mm. you submitted and go to that extreme. But I knew him as an inspirer because I remember yeah. watching him read like Huck Finn. And we had oh, this yeah. little dinky annex outside the high school with a few classrooms. And that's where I had, I think, junior year English with him. And he'd read Huck Finn in such a way that he'd bring it to life. Uh, like the characters were buddies he hung out with. Or mm. Gatsby, you know, when he when they talk about the light away in the distance and Gatsby, he yeah, would yeah. like gesture out the door. And I was like, I know nothing is out there, but holy <laughs> crap, something is out there. And <laughs> it was like, right, that's yeah. what this stuff is for. It's for the feeling right. of it. And right. we really, you know, I'm speaking truly from the, the business perspective here. We really like to optimize away the mm. feeling. We really mm. like to remove the personal perspective or the challenger perspective or the inspiring yeah. perspective because it doesn't feel quote unquote practical, which I, I would, yeah, I would yeah. push back on because what's, what's something you can put in practice more than feeling inspired and having it affect everything you do or understanding good story structure and how to execute that when you communicate one-to-one -one or one-to-many, I mean, these things are practical as hell. They have such power. So yeah. someone like like Shred uh, showed me what this work is actually for. And, and my job to honor his legacy, because unfortunately he's no longer with us, is to carry that with me, to try and infuse yeah. that in the work I do, despite all these effects of you know industrialized education or best practice mm -hmm. laden work, despite those things, trying to remove the desire to yeah. emote, the desire to push and have vision and opine and, you know, the desire to express, but in such a way that you lead people. It's not just a little hobby on the side. Great if you have that, but using the creative craft to instill in others something that empowers and inspires them so they take action on the back end. And yes. that's really what it's for here. It's for sparking action. That's what stories are about. They're vehicles for bringing out some sort of tension or problem and then resolving them and encouraging yeah. others to go along with you too. Speaking of role models, tell me about the book you're choosing to read from us today. 
a character that looms large in my life and my storytelling career and in in many things, even the entertainment that I consume is Anthony Bourdain, like very many Mm. millions of people. Um, perhaps unlike many millions of people, I am of the belief that the business world deserves Bourdain like storytelling. Nice. And so I, you know, I mentioned this mission of mine. Well, the, the approach I have to that mission is to tell a lot of stories and is to try and bring these kinds of stories that he told, uh, in his books, in his TV shows on stages. I got to see him speak a couple of times live, um, try and bring that stuff to the workplace because just like. Bourdain helped us understand nuance and meaning in, in seemingly day-to-day moments. We yes. have those moments every day in work, but oftentimes work content is whatever, screaming about Elon Musk, Bitcoin, and Facebook one more time, <laughs> or yeah. vapid Instagram influencers posting meaningless quotes that sound nice and get liked, but ultimately don't change <laughs> you at all. Right. So like Bourdain right. brought forth such meaning from the seemingly day-to-day. And so I aspire to do that in my storytelling. Well, how did Bourdain change you? I'm going to hear the two pages, but you know that that statement around stories change yeah, people. Yeah. How how has he changed you? I think he was my introduction to creative nonfiction. Mm. Um, not the formal introduction per se. I had a college class actually about creative nonfiction, right. and I remember reading Kazuo Ishiguro and all these other writers. But it was sort of like he took the colloquial tone that I wanted to write in. Um, which I got from sports, you know, Bill Simmons and writers like that, Rick Riley, and applied it to these kinds of very personal narratives that still like Mm. exposed you to ideas and feelings. And, and, and I would say tiny stories with big ideas. Mm. He wasn't ultimately writing about, and this is where his travel show, I think makes people forget this, his writing and even his show was not really about some earth shattering thing that he was discovering or experiencing, even if he was visiting a location that seems exotic to you. Yeah. The parts unknown name of his show, the the unknown (laughs) parts were just sitting with a family and going deeper and getting to know them and finding these ideas and moments Mm. that contained a lot of meaning that contained big ideas and help change you. Um, but he was finding them in the, in the seemingly routine. Right. So again, that's, that's very applicable to our work. So that's what he showed me. I think that's how he changed my approach to story. It's, you know, tiny stories told in such ways that you see the big idea and the big impact of them. Beautiful. And I can see the book. I love how battered it is and well loved it is. So the book Um, is, the book is kitchen confidential. That's the one I pulled from. And uh, how did you choose the two pages? Honestly, it was it was pretty much just whatever stuck with me. I, I mentioned I'm trying to explore what makes work memorable. These yeah. were, among other moments in the book, probably the mm. moment that loomed largest was the one I'll I'll be reading to you. Perfect. Well, why don't I why don't I make a quick introduction and then you can launch into it? Sure. Uh, Jack Kanzo, uh, host of the podcast Unthinkable, amongst other things, reading from Anthony Bourdain's very wonderful book Kitchen Confidential, published in I think 2008. Uh, Jay, over to you. At six in the morning, we boarded Monsieur Saint-Georges small wooden vessel with our picnic baskets and our sensible footwear. He was a crusty old bastard, dressed like my uncle in ancient denim coveralls, epidriles, and a beret. He had a leathery, tanned, and windblown face, hollow cheeks, and the tiny broken blood vessels on nose and cheeks that everyone seemed to have from drinking so much of the local Bordeaux. 
He hadn't fully briefed his guests on what was involved in these daily travails. We putt-putted out to a buoy marking his underwater oyster park, a fenced-off section of Bay Bottom, and we sat and sat and sat in the roaring August sun, waiting for the tide to go out. The idea was to float the boat over the stockaded fence walls and then sit there until the boat slowly sank with the water level until it rested on the basin floor. At this point, Monsieur Sanjour and his guests, presumably, would rake the oysters, collect a few good specimens for sale in port, and remove any parasites that might be endangering his crop. There was, I recall, still about two feet of water left before the hull of the boat settled on dry ground and we could walk about the park. We'd already polished off the brie and the baguettes and down the Evian, but I was still hungry and characteristically said so. Monsieur Saint-Jour, on hearing this, as if challenging his American passengers, inquired in his thick Girondes accent if any of us would care to try an oyster. My parents hesitated. I doubt they'd realize they might actually have to eat one of the raw slimy things we were currently floating over. My little brother recoiled in horror. But I, in the proudest moment of my young life, stood up smartly, grinning with defiance, and volunteered to be the first. And in that unforgettably sweet moment in my personal history, that one moment still more alive for me than so many of the other firsts that followed, first pussy, first joint, first day in high school, first published book or any other thing, I attained glory. Monsieur Saint-Jour beckoned me over to the gunwale, where he leaned over, reached down until his head nearly disappeared underwater and emerged holding a single silt-encrusted oyster, huge and irregularly shaped in his rough claw-like fist. With a snubby, rust-covered oyster knife, he popped the thing open and handed it to me, everyone watching now, my little brother shrinking away from this glistening, vaguely sexual-looking object, still dripping and nearly alive. I took it in my hand, tilted the shell back into my mouth as instructed by the now-beaming Monsieur Saint-Jour, and with one bite and a slurp, wolfed it down. It tasted of seawater, of brine and flesh, and somehow, of the future. Everything was different now. Everything. I'd not only survived, I'd enjoyed. This, I knew, was the magic of which I had until now only been dimly and spitefully aware. I was hooked. My parents' shudders, my little brother's expression of unrestrained revulsion and amazement only reinforced the sense that I had somehow become a man. I had had an adventure, tasted forbidden fruit, and everything that followed in my life, the food, the long and often stupid and self-destructive chase for the next thing, whether it was drugs or sex or some other new sensation, would all stem from this moment. I'd learned something, viscerally, instinctively, spiritually even in some small, precursive way, sexually, and there was no turning back. The genie was out of the bottle. My life as a cook and as a chef had begun. Oh, that is fantastic. Uh, beautifully read, well, well navigated around all the kind of French words. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say um, not, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is it about that story that is resonant for you, Jay? I mean, what really happens? Like, let's start there. What actually happened there? He was a petulant young American traveler with his family in France that up until that moment really hadn't appreciated food. He went out on a tiny little boat, which if you grew up on the shore in Connecticut, like I did, pretty routine and mundane. Mm -hmm. And they had finished their snacks and were starting to complain about being hungry. What a childlike 
slash adult J like thing to do. (laughs) Where are the snacks? And the guy running the boat handed him an oyster and he tried Mm. it. So another Mm. way to look at this is like, Anthony Bourdain, when did you first start thinking more critically about food? Uh, it was actually my first oyster. I was uh, traveling with my family in this little French village yeah. and, and I had a first oyster. You know, it was tasted like this. So I'll never forget it. That's one way to tell the story. Yeah. Instead, like, you, get, you get two pages of power instead. Two pages yeah. of taking a tiny little moment and understanding that these are the moments, like this, that's what life is, right? So if we think life has meaning, then inherently all these little moments that just make up our life have meaning. It can't just be the big visible dots along the map it's all Mm. the little things in between it's that gradation of drawing the line second after second moment after moment like that's where the meaning can come from the problem is we don't often dive deep enough or reflect on it or tell the stories of those moments to then extrapolate out what are the insights what did we learn what changed how are we feeling i mean this this is a moment just like like an oyster to me it's just like dense with nuance and feeling and goodness and the future (laughs) and the future Jay, how do we learn to recognize our own heroic stories? Because this is this is a heroic story. This is the moment of coming to a crossroad and going left instead of right, and everything changes. And I think you're right when you say too often we miss those. We don't we don't mythologize our, our ourselves, and we miss the chance to to be on our heroic quest how 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 do you help or how have you found yourself finding and naming your own stories you know you mentioned mentors earlier and Mm. another mentor i've had professionally is a marketing speaker and author by the name of andrew davis who i think is one of the smart he's he's like the willy wonka of of marketing ideas (laughs) it's incredible he just he just goes traipsing through an industry and finds all these like whimsical ideas and pulls out all these frameworks. But what's really interesting about Drew is the way he thinks is is very much like his work is a quest. So he probably has one career long grand quest, but then he has these little trips he goes on, little adventures, little investigations to explore these subtopics under his large topic. And so what opened up possibility for me was not only experiencing stories like the one I just read, but also understanding that you can spot those a lot easier if your lens through which you see the world changes. And so the way Mm. Drew coached me to change my lens is to think of the work as this constant exploration of something, right? Right. So the macro level mission I have is to help others make what matters. Okay. That may or may not be interesting to you. Maybe right now you're more interested in this idea of resonance. Like how do I connect deeper with those on the receiving end of my work to grow my business or leave my legacy or have this project succeed, right? So maybe that's what gets you into my work. Regardless, the the macro level lens or or the current lens, I'm now, that's what's in the back of my mind at all times. And so I'm moving through the world and I see, you know, the other day I was Mm. going down a one-way road and I saw a woman hanging out of her car with the door open. And it was this like really big black truck, like, you know, Ford F-150 style that had been propped up to be even bigger. And her door was just (laughs) wide open and her leg was out. And like, cars make noise. I don't have an electric vehicle, although I aspire to get one. So my car was making noise, not 10 feet from her leg, and she still didn't budge. And it's like, I so now I have these details. And there's like, there's something there. It could be a metaphor, it could just be a playful description. 
It could be yeah. creating a character out of this woman and her truck. There's just something there. And how do I apply that to the journey I'm on to understand resonance mm. or to help people make what matters? I don't know, but that's a thread I'm going to save for a later date. And I'll pull it the next time right. I open up my laptop to write. You know, So with Bourdain, with his book, with his approach, those tiny yeah. moments, you kind of understand not only how to spot them, but where to take them if you understand the mm. larger mission or premise at play. So my take on this is... You know, the very simple version of this is just paying attention to more things and finding content ideas in them. That's the cheap version of this. Um, but what I really think about it to myself is living life in high definition, right? You can choose to live life in low definition or you can choose to live life in high definition. And since life goes past you at a constant rate, you might as well live in high definition, which is take notice of more things, take joy in the small things as well, write them down, share them with the world, make them interesting. That's really it.